I again want to thank you for your singing that song. It stirs my heart each time. And um, there is a fountain free for you and me. And there's no other way. I find it always difficult at the end of a series of meetings to say goodbye. And that's a difficult thing for me. I want to thank each of you for your kindness and your uh, goodness to Grace and I and the many meals and of course Sonny's have been our buddies for a long time but it's been real special and I just want to thank you for your kindness to me I came here knowing some of the ministry I knew Sonny's and I knew the Bible school crowd and I'd like to say that I preached what I felt God told me to or asked me to. And perhaps if I said things that were upsetting, I didn't mean it that way. But I want you to know that I wasn't primed by your ministry. Uh, blame me and talk to me. Uh, I've learned to appreciate your ministry. They were good men. And I have a lot of faith in them. But... I just wanted to make sure that uh, if you felt I was a bit hard, well, I, I'm sorry, but I shared what was I felt the Lord bared in my heart. So again, thank you. What I have to share this evening is a bit unorthodox, but um, Brother Sonny asked me to share this. You see, I said I didn't share anything yet that your ministry told me. Well, tonight, he asked me to. Grace and I was asked to share at a minister's conference last fall that had to do with dealing with families in trauma. There was an Amish couple from the nickel mine shootings in Pennsylvania there, and then we had to share... Our experience, our experience is not special. Uh, many of you have had hurting things happen. That's life. This is the way it is. I didn't tell you all what I had planned for tonight because I didn't want your pity. I wanted um, in any way that God received the honor and glory. I can't tell you this story. I'm going to read it. Um, I may become choked up at times. That's not my nature or my gene pool, but it still hurts sometimes. And so forgive me if I have my head down most of the time and read. <clears throat> most of life's experiences aren't tragedies, but learning experiences. The, this part of your vows will be tested easy to some and some and more difficult. But when your life is tested and your commitment is tested, does it still stand good? One of the hardest lessons for any couple to learn is to cleave tightest to each other and to God when it appears that the very sun of life has been extinguished. It takes little commitment to hang together during the good times. This pledge is all about the worse and the bad. 
I wish I could tell you it wouldn't happen to you. My wife Grace and I have experienced the joy of birth and the extreme pain of losing a child. No one else can know those feelings but a husband and a wife. Who else could understand the scope of life but two who have loved and prayed and laughed together for a lifetime? I'm sorry. But for most of us, there will be difficult things in your life. This is not the Garden of Eden. And in a marriage relationship, misery can be divided or it can be multiplied. In a good marriage, misery is divided and shared. In a stressed marriage, the misery will always be compounded. And when these things happen, you can gather strength from that vow for better or for worse. And you pull together by God's help and press on. When each of us were born, we were each given a box of matches. Some get a big box. And some people's box is relatively small. My grandmother Heatwell's box had 103 matches in it. Our son Gideon had 19. That is for God to decide. And I can assure you that you can carelessly waste your matches by sinful habits or careless living. But you can do absolutely nothing to add more matches to your box. I am pleading with you, young people, tonight. Make no mistake about it. Life is serious and short. You can live a life of selfishness or in pursuit of pleasure and material things. Or you can commit your life to be a living sacrifice to God for the blessing of others and for the growth of the church. All eternity is depending on you and your choices. Please make them good. Gideon. 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. This verse is so precious to Grace and I, for little did we know when love was young that one day this would be all, the only thing that we would have left to cling to as we followed our son's coffin down the aisle and out into the cemetery. And when God asked you to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with a child, a firstborn that looks so bright, you bury a lot of dreams. I'm going to try to be very careful not to bore you with too much detail or share about Gideon in such a way that makes him to be more than a mere mortal, a son of Adam. He was, after all, kin to me. But we thank God that his sins were forgiven, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and his testimony the morning of the day that his life was taken was that he was committed and victorious, and within a few short hours he was gone. Life as we knew it was over, ushered into the presence of a just and holy God, but also a God of second chances, a God with a big eraser. I'm not a very emotional person by nature. We are heat woes. But I have experienced sadness and disappointment almost more than a human heart can bear. And so while you may not see actual tears on the paper as I read this to you, the heaviness in my heart has stirred the strong emotion of sadness that it can almost be felt again just as it did 
14 years ago, May 17, 2002. It is a day that grace, our children and I can never forget, but God has given us grace, peace and healing, and not a spirit of despair. Isaiah 61.3 And provide for those who grieve in Zion or Old or South Carolina to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. As a young couple, we had often prayed about the family that we hoped God would give us one day. And so after the confirmation from the British nurse that we were indeed going to be parents, my thoughts were often of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and how she dedicated his life to the service of God and dropped him off at the tabernacle with Pastor Eli to grow up in his service there. And so we had given each of our children to God as well to be a useful servant and labor and to help to work the growing of the church. And when you give something to God, it's his to use as he sees best and for his honor and glory. We named all four of our boys after Bible characters that we thought would give them someone and something to live up to. And soon after our little son was born, I made a short distance long landline call to my mother to tell her that she had another grandson. And when she asked what his name was and I told her Gideon Percy, she thought I was picking on her and that no one had actually named their child that. I assured her that his name was that, and no, I wasn't offended that she didn't care much for it. Two of my sisters back in America had just bore fruit, and one of the baby's name was Bethlehem, as in Bethlehem. The other was named Denise, as in Denephew. <laughs> oh well, Gideon sounded pretty solid to me. And in mom's defense, when he was killed, she told me that she'd really learned to like that name, and it just fit him. A little while later, when we returned back to Sandy Lake from Red Lake, Ontario, with a baby, I went over to the Catholic priest's house to use his telephone, and I asked him if he was aware that we'd had a little baby boy. Why, no, he said, and what did you name him? Gideon, I said. And then old Father Dumont, the French-Canadian priest from Quebec, got the most reverent look on his face, crossed himself, and he says, I wish more people would use holy names for their children. And it was settled. Gideon indeed was a proper name. The priest said so. Gideon accepted Christ as his Savior at 15. He had done something, and I now have no memory of what it was, but it was something that Grace and I felt needed to be dealt with. And it was while working through that problem that he admitted that he felt the call of God on his life and gave his heart to God. And when we got up off our knees from our time of praying together, I again experienced the same joy and sense of well-being, just as we had before at the time of his physical birth. Everything felt so new again. And while he did make mistakes, 
and needed to grow and mature spiritually, I don't think he ever doubted his experience and that it was real and that his commitment to his Christian life was genuine. Gideon had gone to Heritage Bible School in North Georgia for two years in the wintertime after graduating from high school. The second year he was there in 2002, he met a blonde-haired girl from Indiana, Margaret Rhodes Raber. To say that she pleased him well is an understatement. So after Bible school and with the blessing of Mr. Enos Rhodes, they started dating. She was a spiritually sensitive girl with a lively, bubbly, almost contagious personality. We were pleased and life was good. Carla and Josh had also become Christians. And Carla was a senior in high school. I was 45 and was growing, and the farm was growing, and God had blessed us beyond what we had dared to hope. Gideon wanted to farm, and so we, it seemed prudent to clear some more land to add center pivot irrigation and to add some newer, bigger equipment. The pivots were ordered. A tractor was bought to pull the bigger planters and a track hoe was clearing land. I felt at the top of my game. Grace, too, was finding fulfillment being a busy farm wife, mother of teenagers, and deaconess. She doesn't really much care for that title. My brother Don and I had an airplane, a Luscom 8C. And when Don and I divided, we, I, when Don and I decided that we should divide our farming operations for the good of our families, we had eight boys between us. I sold my share of the plane for several reasons. One, I needed the bread to farm with. And two, I didn't think it would look right for me to have an airplane and my wife living with five children in an old house trailer that we got when we started our new farm. Gideon got his pilot's license and sometime after high school and Uncle Don said that if he got it inspected and maintained he could just fly the Luscombe and his only expense would be to keep gas in it. It seemed to be a workable plan for Gideon. He could fly with not much out-of-pocket cash. Flying is a very expensive hobby and the cash burn can be savage. It can compete very quickly with your ability to meet your obligations to the Lord, the church, and your family. It was the last day of school at our local Christian school. Gideon had just gotten home from Indiana from visiting Margaret. The cotton was all planted and coming up nicely. Gideon and I were working together that day building fence. He had been planting cotton for about two weeks and then a trip to Indiana. And so other than some meat and greet at the breakfast table, we hadn't spent much time together for a while. And it was during our time that morning that we had several good conversations about our future on the farm, his future as he saw Margaret, and his spiritual well-being. Little did I know that it would be our last. The Sam Groff family had moved in our community several years before and decided to move back to Pennsylvania the coming week after school. Their son Jerry, who was about 25 at the time, wanted an airplane ride before they moved. So Gideon said that he would take him that afternoon since someone 
else was going to do the milking. So at chore time, he got his stuff and waved to me as he went by in the pickup on his way to where the plane was parked. He soon took off, flew over the shop, and I headed to the bank. While at the bank, I noticed all of the fire trucks and the EMS vehicles heading out of town. It never occurred to me that this time it would be our world turned upside down. The death angel would visit our house. I would find out soon enough. When I got home, I was met in the lane by Gordon Amstutz, who was working for me at the time. He said there'd been an accident with the plane, that he had taken Grace over to the crash site. Jerry was dead, and it didn't look good for Gideon. They had crashed in my neighbor's cotton field, and before I got there, the air ambulance helicopter had already picked Gideon up and was on his way to Columbia, South Carolina. When I got to the plane, he was already en route to the hospital. Grace had gotten there early on and had been able to talk to him and hold him while his lungs filled up with blood from massive chest trauma. And while he could not talk back to her, God only knows if he could hear and comprehend his mother's last and parting words. The Bamberg County Sheriff was there and he said that he would either take us or escort us to the hospital about an hour and a half away. We thanked him and decided to drive ourselves to the hospital, so I took Grace by the house to get her some clothes and personal items so she could stay there with him. As we went by the house, I told the children what little we knew ourselves. Grace packed a few things, and we left for the hospital in Columbia. The hospital had called and told us to come, and in good faith and praying, that is what we did. There's not much to say, or perhaps one doesn't know what to say as we made our way toward where we were told we would be with Gideon. And as we were going through the little town of Denmark, I was facing a personal battle that I have never fought before or any time since. How could I pray and ask God to spare Gideon's life when Jerry was already dead? How could I ask something of God that the Groff family had already been denied? Would I be selfish by doing so? And was it fair that Gideon was living and their son was already dead? These and many other questions came crushing down on me, so much so that I finally realized I needed to pray God's will be done. And if it meant that Gideon would die too, well... I would just need to accept that as his will for us, as Job did. And was I man enough to trust God and let him make that choice for us? Job 1, 21 and 22. And Job said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked I shall return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Carl sin not, nor charge God foolishly. Could I be the man that Job was and release our son to give him back to God as we had promised God when Gideon was born?
By now, we were perhaps halfway to Columbia, and we got that call that Gideon had died, and the hospital would not let us see his body. I pulled off the road into the edge of a cotton field to turn around and to go back home. I didn't know how long we sat there. It may have been only a few minutes, or it may have been quite a few minutes, but there was nothing left to do but the crying. I called my brother Wendell and asked him to clear the house of everybody but the children so that we could have some private time with them. And it was then that I knew that the dreaded phone call to Indiana and to Margaret had to be made to tell her that our son, her boyfriend, was dead. Carla had been milking when the accident happened, and so when she became aware that Gideon's plane had gone down, she'd called Margaret and told her that he had been in an aircraft accident. I had reminded Gideon many times before, be careful. I don't want to be the one who has to call Margaret and tell her that you have been careless and got yourself killed. And that's exactly what I had to do. Margaret and her parents, Enos and Connie Rhodes, had already left Indiana and were headed to South Carolina to visit the boyfriend who was injured in an aircraft accident. Now they were headed to South Carolina to the funeral of the one who would never say, I love you, or will you marry me? And so they turned around and went back to the house so Mr. Rhodes could get his suit. Death is so final, and it makes its own appointments. We took the four children that remained and went into my study, and we did what we didn't know how to do console heartbroken and traumatized children and assure them that God is still good and that while we can't change our circumstances, we can all commit to live our lives in such a way that we can all be where Gideon is and not one missing. As requested, everybody left the house except my sister-in-law and she sat out in the kitchen to answer the phone that often rang. We weren't ready to talk to people just yet. We needed to be left alone. A neighbor lady who worked at the local hospital was listening to the scanner and the 911 calls about the accident at the hospital when the crash happened. She being a very bold and forward personality came into the house and into the room where we were and tried to minister unto us. We had teenagers and big boys that needed to cry. There was a mom and a dad that needed to cry, and we didn't need an audience or spectators. And there was that part of me that was so put off by her brazen behavior that I felt like flipping her across my shoulder and carrying her out and across the porch and throwing her headlong into the shrubbery. And I think my brother finally came and asked her to leave, bless his heart. We felt that perhaps we needed to go see the Groff family and apologize for what had happened and make sure there was no hard or bitter feelings. It's not easy to go the home of someone whose son was killed in a plane your son was flying, but it didn't take long before we knew that they had no ill will or no bad feelings toward us or Gideon. 
They felt that it was an accident that God had allowed it to happen, and they assured us that they would never have any feelings toward us other than Christian love and would share our sorrow for the loss that we too had experienced. Praise God. From there we went back home to our beds, but sleep never came. Not then, not later, and not in the morning. There is no rest from sorrow in a broken heart. It has, was many weeks, perhaps several months, until we could find rest, both physical or emotional, at night. Job chapter 7 is so descriptive how we often felt. Many, many long, draining nights, crying out in anguish of soul. I never saw Gideon after he left to go fly, and I wanted to keep it that way. I had no desire to see his mangled body, but I'm not a woman, a mother. I had not given birth to him or nursed him and cared for him as a newborn, as only a mother can do. Grace got to the crash site before the air ambulance helicopter did, and she got to hold him and speak to him. She was also left with the memory of how he looked and suffered, and that was etched in her mind, and she would have to live with that for over a year or more. She would read in bed until she couldn't stay awake any longer, sometimes falling to sleep with the lamp on so her mind wouldn't torment her with the gruesome memory of how she last saw Gideon. I was never bothered with those difficult mental images because I never saw him that way. The accident happened late afternoon on a Thursday. Many people drove from far and wide to go to the crash site and see the wreckage of the plane. On Friday afternoon, NTSB, or National Transport and Safety Board, had the wreckage removed from the cotton field and put in a ham hangar at the Bamberg County Airport where they would reassemble the wreckage of the plane and try to determine what went wrong. NTSB does an investigation on all aircraft accidents, large or small, and then it started to rain. It rained a cool, steady drizzle on into the night and the next day. The weather was overcast, gray, and drizzle totally fit my mood of sadness and loss. And just before lunch on Saturday, I got a call from NTSB. They said they wanted to meet with me at the airport. I was in no mood to go out and meet the public, let alone meet with these men that I felt sure would tell me that the plane was fine. Probable cause of crash would be pilot error. I told them I didn't think I wanted to meet with them. The man on the other end of the phone said, we think it's very important that you come. We have some very conclusive findings that may help your family process your loss. I drove alone to the airport and went into the hangar and there standing around the wreckage of Gideon's plane were four men, uniformed and armed. I don't know why. The FBO, or fixed-based operator, was there as well. He had done some of the inspections on the plane when my brother and I owned it together. 
The aircraft lay all across the hangar floor and as close of a reconstruction as possible. Finally, one of the men began to talk. He said he thought it may give, be helpful and that I would want to know why the plane went down and, what was its prob and it would probably give our hearts some rest, peace, and closure. The cause of the crash was not pilot error, but mechanical failure. And then he proceeded to show me their findings and what conclusions they had come to as a team. On most aircraft, the nuts on most all bolts have a castle nut with a safety wire going through them so the nut cannot vibrate loose and come off. This particular aircraft had extensive overhaul and some conversions for aerobatics soon before we purchased it and the man who owned the plane did the work himself and signed off his own work instead of another mechanic. In short, many crucial bolts were never safetyed. The pin that connects the elevator cable to the control stick came out, thus Gideon lost his ability to control his forward and aft pitch. It put him into about a 30 degree dive with no possible way to recover. He no doubt knew that something was horribly wrong, shut off the engine and tried to land in Myron Brubaker's cotton field. The plane hit hard and the cockpit was crushed on impact. The NTSB officer showed me other flaws that were an accident waiting to happen. Again, a case where the plane was inspected every year and a cert certified mechanic signed the certificate of airworthiness without pulling up the floorboards and giving a thorough inspection. And then the official from NTSB said something like this. You know, not even Chuck Yeager or St. Peter could have landed that airplane. I thought you should know it was not your son's fault. After a few minutes to let all of this sink in, the NTSB officer then asked me this question. Would you like for us to represent you in a court case against the one who's been falsifying the mechanical logs and the certificate of airworthiness of the aircraft your son was flying? And it was at that point it became clear to me that someone's carelessness had caused Gideon and Jerry to be killed. And there was a minute, maybe five minutes, that I needed to be sure that the biblical teachings and principles of not being an aggressor in the court of law or turning the other cheek were not just some wonderful sounding idea in some utopian place and time, but to forgive and to follow the teaching of Jesus when it was within our grasp to seek revenge for the thoughtless actions of someone who caused our son's accident and death, I responded. No amount of money can bring my son back to life. And I'm sure that the one whose mistake caused Gideon's death feels terrible and guilty already. My answer is no. Are you sure, he asked. And I thanked them for their help that they gave and the work that they did for us. 
and I walked out of that hangar into the gray, foggy drizzle and sat in my vehicle for a while to process all that had been told me by those who investigated the accident. I must choose to forgive just as Christ has forgiven me. And I surrendered my heart and will to God, and he gave me peace. And as I write this account, my heart is stirred again how important that our life and actions are a reflection of the teachings and example of Christ when we have been served a terrible wrong. And each year as I teach Bible school, I relate this story in my love and non-resistance class that I teach. That is why it is so important that we are taught and have good doctrine. We may never know when we will be thrust into a crisis situation. And we need to respond on biblical truth and not on feelings and emotion. About six months later, Margaret asked if she could come down from Indiana and would we take her to meet Mr. Popovich. That's not his real name. The man who last signed off the mechanical logs to the Luscombe. He also was Gideon's flight instructor. We knew that this may be a bit, but we knew that this may be a bit or very awkward. But she was having a problem with not having a forgiving attitude towards him. I called Mr. Gibson, who was the FBO at the airport, and he had been my flight instructor many years before. And he agreed to work with us in getting Mr. Popovich to come into the room where we could meet with him. Grace cooked one of her signature cherry pies, and we, along with Margaret, drove to the airport. And when we got there, Mr. Gibson showed us into a conference room, and then he called for Mr. Popovich to come in, and he did. I started to feel sorry for him. He looked like a fox caught in the hen house. He had been one of the few in the flying community that did not come to the visitation, the funeral, or come by the house to express his condolences. No. I didn't address him as Nathan the prophet did King David and say, Thou art the man. I just told him that he did not need to fear us and that there would be no charges pressed or lawsuit. Grace gave him the pie, and Margaret was able to see the man face to face who by all indications was probably responsible for the accident. And then he was gone. Several weeks later, Margaret wrote Mr. Popovich a letter and expressed to him her forgiveness and asked him if he knew Christ as his personal Savior. We took the letter over to the airport and gave it to Mr. Gibson and asked if he would give it to him, and he said that he would. I have asked about Mr. Popovich since, but other than that, I heard that his wife left him and that he was a very lonely man. It has been years since I've heard anything about him. Perhaps Margaret's letter broke his stony heart, and he can rejoice with Gideon and Jerry at that great supper of the Lamb. But Margaret found freedom and was able to move on with her life, and within six months, she was married to a young widower, Amos Raber. 
It would take many, many pages to describe the happenings of the next few days, the visitation, the funeral, and all the people who sent cards came to see us and showed their love to us in many ways. But I will take time to mention just a few. The farming and the chores got done without us for several days. Gordon Amstutz was working for us at the time and he coordinated chore help from the neighbors, the church people, and saw that it was done for the best part of a week. No doubt he was hurting too. He and Gideon were friends and had worked together on the farm. Grandmother Vera Heatwell. Grandmother came to see us the morning after the accident. She was perhaps 99 or 100 years old at the time. And she told of losing a son, Roy, 70-some years before, and how it still pained her heart at times even to think about it. She had little to say, and she didn't stay long, but the sadness of the expression on her face and a tear on her cheek told me that she had been there and she understood our pain. My parents came to see us the night of the accident and they too had little to say. And as I told you before, at a time like this, there's nothing left to do but the crying. And it was during this time that mom told me how much she had come to like the name Gideon and how it just fit him. And it wasn't until my dad's death a few years ago that I knew how much he suffered as well. He told my Aunt Miriam Brubaker that it came as a blow so staggering to him that he felt like he'd just been hit by a ton of bricks. Grace's parents, Grandpa Henry and Mary Jane Hosteller, had also buried a child, a 16-year-old girl who looked a lot like Grace. They drove to Winnipeg, Manitoba, flew to Atlanta, rented a car, and drove the remaining distance, about three and a half hours, and arrived about midnight the next day. Again, lots and lots of tears. Many people came, people who ran businesses that the farm dealt with, and even many curious people came to see us. Some we were glad when they came, others we were glad when they left, but I want to think all meant well. Some people are not at a loss, excuse me, some people are at a loss themselves as to what to do and say in such circumstances. Some would say or do awkward and strange things, but they meant well. I had gone to and graduated from the local public high school in the early 70s. The student body was 95% African American, and most of them were my friends. Several of them came out to the house to hug and to cry and to visit us as well. We had just sat down for Sunday dinner with Margaret and her family, Grandpa Henry's and perhaps a few others. And it's difficult to enjoy food during those times, but it does give you something to do. And there was a knock on the door and in walked Cassandra Moncrief. She was our neighbor girl growing up, growing up from a family of 19 children from one mother. Her brothers called her Sank for short, so we did too. Sank was a very big, full-figured woman who was 
very matronly in form, very. I got up from the table and went over to shake her hand and she threw her arms around me and pulled me into her more than ample bosom with a crushing embrace, leaned back and lifted my feet off of the floor. <laughs> and when she set me down again, she asked me so all could hear, when y'all gonna funeralize him? And I told her what the funeral arrangements were and invited her. She left some food for us and then she was gone. When I got back to the table, everyone was laughing but me. Yes, I'm sure it was quite a demonstration for those who didn't know Sank or are familiar with her culture. But I was honored that a black girl from school many years before carried enough about this white boy with a broken heart to hug him in his time of need. Several days after the funeral, when most of the relatives had gone, perhaps only Margaret was still there. She stayed with us for two weeks afterwards and was able to find a ride back to Indiana. There was a strange car that pulled into the house, and so I went out to meet them. This was not unusual, as many people came to express their concern and their sympathies. And there was a newspaper article with lots of pictures and bold headlines because it was two young men in a plane crash that received a lot of media coverage. A lady with long blonde hair got out and again I recognized her as another classmate from high school, one of the few whites. I had not seen her for many years. Gay air. She came up to me and hugged me handed me a small zinc-coated bucket full of roasted-in-the-shell peanuts and said, I'm sorry. And then she burst into tears and stood there sobbing. Nothing more needed to be said. She didn't have to. And then after a few minutes, she turned and walked over to her car and left. And again, my heart was touched by such care and concern. The visitation the night before the funeral was long. Some 800 people signed the register. The Groffs met their friends and family in the sanctuary. We met in the back of the church. No doubt some went through both lines. Titus Schrocks came and brought Andrea. She was a cute little six or seven year old in pigtails. I can still see her now. Jason's family, Galen and Jeannie Schrock, were there too. Little did we know that Carla and Aaron would marry into the big Schrock family. And the funeral was a double funeral as well, and also very many people attended. But in the end, after the graveside service, Grace and I were alone. Everyone had gone home or went to a barred fellowship hall where a meal was provided. I remember feeling so exhausted, so sad, and so disappointed to be sitting by a grave with fresh dirt mounted on top, knowing that Gideon and all of those dreams that would never be. Margaret would marry someone else, at least we told her to. I would go back to the farm and to the barn and take over the responsibilities that he had taken on 
and harvest the cotton that he had planted and wait for the other boys to grow up. Yes, we had buried a lot of dreams, but yet I felt a certain calm and peace. No, it was not the path that we would have chosen, not by a hundred thousand miles, but God knew where we were and he felt our pain. And while he could have changed the outcome and the circumstances of the last few days, it was God's choice and his alone to let broken airplanes fall out of the sky and two young men to be ushered into eternity. We must not doubt God's goodness, concern, or our will, or his will for our lives. We became very weary of hearing Romans 8:28 as rendered in the King James Version. It seems that when people are at a loss for something to say at a time of tragedy, they just go into some mode of desperation to say something brilliant or com com comforting, or of course something with a spiritual lit lilt to it. Bless their heart. Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for good that are to them that love God and to them who are called according to his purpose. We heard that verse quoted to us many, many times, and it's not helpful at all in dealing with the tremendous load of sorrow, pain, and disappointment that one already has. It does not make anyone feel better or change the circumstances. People often make a feeble statement about death being God's will or all things work together for good. Well, I will tell you now with all of my heart that that's just not so. When Gideon died, I'm convinced that God cried too. He has a father's heart. So where was God when Gideon and Jerry died? I believe he was at the same place where he was when his son died. He was there watching and weeping. And that being said, Romans 8.28 is a fine verse. Just read it in a different translation. Even when bad and painful things happen in your life, God can salvage the situation and make good or redeem what's left. My rendering. What is good about your child being killed? What is good when you have been ruined financially? What is good about a young mother dying with small children? What is good about having a wayward or rebellious child? But God can take even those things and make beauty of ashes. I got so frustrated I wrote a sermon on suffering the will of God in Romans 8.28 a few months later. It was good for me to vent, to dig and to study, and I hope and pray that others were blessed as well. I didn't preach for several months. I just couldn't concentrate or set aside the crushing feeling of a broken heart. It's long enough to study. Job became my favorite book of the Bible, and still it is very high on the list. I couldn't read Psalms anymore. Way too many promises about living right and being blessed with a long life and tremendous blessings. Well, it didn't work for Gideon. I canceled several speaking commitments. I just couldn't face crowds and all those people. 
to whom we became somewhat of a celebrity, an elite club, those who have lost a child in a tragic accident. That's not a club you want to join, trust me. But God did bring about healing, and yes, it took time. The children healed much faster than mom and dad. In a short time, they were going to youth and other functions and appearing to lead very normal lives again. Not so, mom and dad. But I can tell you that after a full year had passed, we were bouncing back. We could never be the same, but we were able to function, plan, dream, and hope for a future again, and everybody needs some hope. Looking back to that period of our life from this vantage point 14 years later, we can see the hand of a loving God on us in spite of the hope and dreams that we had that would never be. Time is a great healer. A lot of things take time. Good friendships, good food, healing from a jilted romance, and of course moving on after the death of a very close loved one. My uncle Howard Brubaker, who was serving as bishop at the time of Gideon's death, lives not far down the road from our farm. From time to time, he would come by to show an interest in me, the broken-hearted deacon. We both had an interest in songbirds, and for him, Purple Martins in particular. In the following spring, perhaps eight or nine months after the accident, he came by, as he often did, and asked me, have you any Martin birds yet? And then later he'd come back and ask, how many Martin birds do you have? While not a profound question, perhaps, it was his way of being available and waiting and watching for the time when the sun would shine again and that there would be joy in our journey and that Grace and I were healing in a healthy way. I will call it pastoral care. Uncle Howard turned 80 this past spring. And while he still comes over from time to time, maybe to see the Purple Martins, maybe to see me, I'm never sure. But our roles are changing. It is my turn to go to his house from time to time and ask him how many bluebirds he shot lately and other points of interest. He really did shoot some bluebirds who were taking up resident in his Martin house and he felt were scaring them off. Time marches on, retirement, and the passing to one's eternal reward. And I hope to do for Uncle Howard what he did for me. I told you that to tell you this. Sometimes we need to be left alone in our troubles. And not everybody has earned the right to ask certain personal questions or have privilege to the inner pain and crying of a hurting, broken heart. I don't know how much time passed from Gideon's death into what I'm about to relate, at least one year, maybe two. We were hosting guests from out of town, way out of town. So before we sent them to bed, we offered them some tea and Grace probably had some cheese and crackers or pie. It doesn't really matter except that you can never really go wrong with cheese anytime. 
and the conversation had previously centered around common acquaintances, growing children, our vocations, and etc. And it was then that I noticed he was starting to circle, as in buzzard zeroing in on a gut pile. In our up-to-now conversation, I had learned that he, and perhaps she, had completed the appropriate number of classes and hours of training to get a certificate to shrink a degree in counseling from a university way out of our town. And he intended to use his new chest of tools on me. Now, where are you at in the 10 steps of grieving, he asked. Are you still angry with God? And while I may have looked like a rabbit caught in the headlights or someone who had just been shot, I couldn't believe what was happening to me. The nerve of that man. We weren't that tight. We weren't best buds. And we weren't kindred spirits. Or we didn't even go to the same church. We were only casual acquaintances. And Grace and I were giving them fodder and provender for the night. And here he was trying to interrogate me about things that were way too personal for our level of fellowship, friendship. I sat there for a while and listened to him pry this way and pry that way, perhaps like a dentist trying to dig out an old tooth going bad. And then I said this, <clears throat> I didn't know we ever were angry with God. Disappointed? Yes. But angry? No. We have a loving family and a caring church. And I think we're going to be all right. The conversation sort of died and we finally shuffled off to bed. Praise God. And we just, just because someone has a certificate from the School of Great Minds, and as set under the teachings of Dr. Sounding Brass, 1 Corinthians 13, 1, doesn't automatically give them the privilege to dig into your heart. That has to be earned through kindness and friendship. Yes, I still like Uncle Howard Brubaker's way the best. Butch McGee. We noticed that we, everyone we met after Gideon's death for the first time needed to acknowledge his passing, express their heartfelt sympathy, and get this whole awkward thing off of the table before we could talk about anything else. And it took a while until we saw all the people that we relate to, whether in business or on a social level. I was working in the shop several days after the funeral when Butch McGee drove in in his white Ford pickup. He was the Ford New Holland dealer from a town about an hour away. Daryl Brubaker and I had recently both bought New Holland disc mowers from him, and he was a real nice guy in his upper 50s or early 60s. And so, of course, we had to have the conversation about Gideon. And he was quick to get to the point. Just be thankful that you had him for 20 years. And I was left to my own thoughts. And then I turned slowly and looked him in the eye. Do you and your wife have children? And he gave me a longing, hollow-eyed look in return. No. 
And while it didn't take the pain away in my own heart, it did help me to realize that most of us have hurts, and to some it may hurt just as bad to never have been able to have children as to have had and lost. It's not very productive to use our time to constantly ask yourself why and what if. We may never know on this side of eternity what God's purpose was for allowing Gideon's life to be so short while my grandmother's so long. To spend much energy rolling these questions around in your mind is a vicious treadmill. It goes nowhere. And I believe that God could have intervened at any time. He could have kept that plane from crashing. He could have let them live with perhaps great handicap or he could have healed them. But just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you are not affected by the forces of gravity and the laws of nature. Broken airplanes fall out of the sky for Christian and sinner alike. God could have stopped the process at any point but chose to stand back and watch and cry. And no family can go through something such as this and not be changed for better or for worse. And we pray that God has changed us for the better. An evangelist was having meetings in our area the first spring following Gideon's death. One day he came and talked to me after church. Perhaps he saw the whole process had taken its toll on me and there wasn't a lot of wind in my sails many days. But he said this to me, I've listened to what people are saying here about you since Gideon's death, and they are saying that you are a better man for it. And I felt like crying out to God from my broken heart, but couldn't I have been a better man some other way? But that decision is up to God, and I must trust his judgment for the path that he leads our family on. Yes, the sun does shine again, but perhaps in a different way than it used to. When I wonder what reason God had for allowing us to experience this huge disappointment associated with the death of the child, I can't really put my finger on one thing. But this one thing I do know that he, Gideon, is not coming back to us, but we can go where he is. And King David said that many years ago at the passing of his child with Bathsheba. The other thing may be that it has fallen on us, the privilege or responsibility to minister to others who are bereaved, especially those who have lost children. We can feel their pain. And what it's not a ministry that you may sign up for or choose, it is the one that is scriptural. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And then came the day when we needed to go shopping for a tombstone. That's not a fun day of shopping. Neither Grace nor I are serious shoppers. I enjoy grocery stores, tool stores, 
and flower nursery type places. And Grace really enjoys Christian bookstores. But some kind people had given us some money to put toward the purchase of a stone for Gideon's grave, and we were grateful. We went to Orangeburg, South Carolina one day to a store that sells such things. And the elderly couple who ran the store asked us about Gideon, and then they told us of losing a child as well. We picked a smallish stone in black granite with his name and birth date and date of death. I had already picked the epitaph many weeks before when reading the scriptures one day and knew without a shadow of a doubt that this was the verse for Gideon. And so if you would go to the cemetery and look at the headstone that marks the place where we laid his broken body, you will see this verse carefully engraved there. 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in truth. Nothing else matters to me, not wealth, land, possessions, or honor and fame, but all of our children, without exception, know the God of all comfort as their Lord and Savior and walk in truth. The elderly couple who ran the monument store thought the verse was nice, and they wished us their sympathy, and they said that they would order the stone, and when it came, they would take it to the cemetery at our church and set it for us. And we wrote them a check and walked slowly back to the car with our heads down and our shoulders sagging, and we just went home. There was still too much sadness, the start heart still way too heavy and broken to eat lunch out on the town. That too would take time. Four years ago, my lifelong friend and cousin Daryl Brubaker went to be with the Lord. I spent some time with him the day before he died, and I asked him to tell Gideon when he got there that we're all doing good and we're coming along after a while. And he said he would. And now, more recently, my mother passed. And she assured me that she, too, would look up Gideon, Gideon and tell him we're coming. 2 Corinthians 5.10 So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is not seen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or evil. I want to tell you, young people, if you are counting the costs, please quit counting and surrender your life to God. There's no other way that you can get to the pearly gates but by a surrendered life and have only by the, the providence of God that my son is on the other side. You know, raising your children is kind of like playing checkers or chess and you're moving the buttons and moving the, and trying to get them on the other side and we've got one boy across. He's a king now. And I wouldn't ask him back it took a while, but he's a king now. 
If you have doubt in your heart tonight of your eternal salvation, tonight is a night where you can give your heart to Jesus. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, tonight you can. Or if you're living in a way where you know you're not right and you're counting the cost, surrender your heart tonight. Grace and I went to see her folks one time and on the way we stopped by Detroit and you know I showed you that mug I had that black mug from Henry Ford we got there early in the morning we didn't know what time the museum opened and we walked in the door and there was people kind of milling around the ticket window and this little old man came by and he says did you all come to see the museum? And we said, yes, sir, we did. He said, I want to tell you something. I come in here every morning to walk to get my exercises up and down these halls, you know, like some people do in the malls. And he said, I used to work here, and I, have a, I used to work for Henry Ford, and I have a lifetime pass. He said, I knew Henry Ford, and I can get you in here. At 9.30, when they open this place, you meet me right here. And I'll be back here, and I'll get you in. And so we went and milled around, and we came back at 9.30, maybe 9.29. And here come the little old man, stooped, and big smile on his face, and he said, follow me. And he took us down the hall, and we made a left turn and went down another hall. And there was a gate, a barricade in the hall, and there was a lady standing there behind a big oak desk. And she had an ink stamper, and um, <clears throat> you give her your tickets, and she stamps your hand, and you can go through the big gate. And you can observe all the Henry Ford stuff back there. I didn't know Henry Ford. I never worked for Henry Ford. I had never bought a ticket. There was no reason that I should, Grace and I should ever get in there. But we knew the little old man who knew Henry Ford. And when we got up to the ticket gate, he waved at the woman and said, There with me. Let them in. And she stamped our hands and let us in. I want to know tonight. Do you have a stamp on your hand? And do you know the one that can get you through the gates? And if you don't know that tonight, tonight is your chance. Shall we sing just as I am? <clears throat>